Previously on Beta. Uh, Let me just, I'll, yeah, start again. All right. Uh, can, can I use this chair? Nick Danger, third eye. Uh, I want to order a, a pizza to go and no anchovies. No anchovies? You've got the wrong man. I spell my name, Danger. Excuse me, but that's a very interesting line of questioning coming from a man with your reputation, I must say. I'll have you know, madam, that I'm so clean, I sparkle. Oh, really? Can you prove that? Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Today, Sean Cosby joins us to talk about his debut novel, My Darkest Prayer, which has now been republished. With a short story, you, you, you're basically playing one note and to equate it to a musical metaphor. With a novel, it's a symphony. Also, independent filmmaker Nina Mankis on her documentary, Brainwashed, Sex, Camera, Power. It's a compelling look at the ways movies objectify women on screen. Women actresses often have fragmented body parts. You will not see that on a heterosexual male actor. He won't be shot like that. But first, comedian Brian Posehn. Besides being a comedian, Brian's also a writer, actor, and a podcaster. So that makes him a quadruple threat. Brian's first big break was as a cast member and writer of the groundbreaking HBO series Mr. Show with Bob and David. He also voiced the character of Jim Kubat on Bill Oakley's animated series Mission Hill. Brian also appeared on Comedy Central's The Sarah Silverman Show and had a recurring role on The Big Bang Theory. I could go on and on about his credits, but if I did, we'd have to cut the interview short. Brian's latest project is a comedy special called Posena Non Grata. It was recorded at the Beat Kitchen in Chicago. Since his special is called Posena Non Grata, I had to find out if he actually thought of himself as an unacceptable or unwelcome person. I just like uh, silly puns for my special names. I've had the same manager forever, and uh, we have to we share a sensibility. And when I pitch and I when I pitch a show idea to him or a special name or whatever it is, I know that I usually do it for him. And and mm -hmm. and this got the chuckle I always got, like when I did the fartest and when I did mm -hmm. fart and wiener jokes and the names of my other albums, you know. Um, so. He, he went for it, and it stuck. Yeah, and rightfully so, and I think it will continue <laughs> to stick for years ahead because, no, it's really, it's, it's you mentioned, said it's silly, but it is silly, but in a very smart way. Well, thank you. Thank you. Your stand-up comedy has been described as nerdy misanthropy. Is, is that what you're going for? <laughs> no, I mean, that might be just who I am as an old... <laughs> As an old nerdy white dude, uh, but no, uh, that's not what I'm going for with my stand-up. It's just luckily people uh, let me come into the, their homes and share it with them. Because obviously, you know me, I'm a nerd, I'm a metalhead. Those are the things I care about, you know? So for me, the last six years are weird because Metallic is good again. <laughs> You're a big fan of metal. You've even recorded your own metal theme song that plays you on stage. That's me, comedy. I love that song. What part has metal played in your life and in your stand-up? Well, a big part. I mean, for me, it's... I listen to... I'm just a music fan, you know, more than anything. And, mm -hmm. yeah, a metalhead... 
I've been forever, but I also love all different types of music. And it's just, it's music's really important to me. I mean, I use it all the time. I get it, you know, if I'm taking my kid to school, getting myself fired up for a set, whatever, it's been, it's been a big part of me my whole life. And, and for me to make it part of my standup, it felt, um, organic you know when I did it when I started mentioning the bands I liked and when I came up with a Slayer joke and you know even that I try not to be too over the top with it because I know most people aren't that familiar with metal I mean I'm probably speaking to a, a pretty low percentage of people out there when I talk to metalheads but uh you know uh I feel like everybody's aware of and like when you do a Slayer joke you know that even if people aren't Slayer fans they're aware of uh what they are and what they represent, you know. Mm -hmm. Your love of metal led to one of the funniest sketches, in our opinion, on Mr. Show with Bob and David. We had Bob Odenkirk on, and he talked about Titanica. What did being on that trailblazing comedy show do for you and for your career? A lot. I mean, I owe everything to those two dudes. Uh, it really got me out there, and it, it um, you know, to be a part of that show, people saw it, and the right people saw it and, you know, sure, we're not uh, the most famous sketch show of all time, but we're really highly regarded by people that know sketch. And, you know, it still got me on. That's how I got on Big Bang Theory. And that's how I got on Just Shoot Me. And that's how I got on all these other shows is because the writers were fans of Mr. Show and knew that I could do what I would do, you know, like knew me from there. And then also my writing career, I owe so much to them because... I was in that room, and it means a lot to other people that are hiring, you know? Mm-hmm, yeah. Do you have a favorite sketch, a uh, favorite Mr. Show sketch that you were involved in? It's still Titanic. I, yeah. I, I yeah. still have the body. I, I In my nerd cave right now, I'm, I'm actually looking at the David Cross little uh, shriveled cigar body. Huh. Uh, <laughs> yeah. How did COVID and isolation affect you and your family? Uh, man, I probably shouldn't say this. We talk about, we feel guilty about how much we enjoyed uh, being home uh, solid for two years, just hmm. the three of us and our dogs. Like we're a big dog family and our dogs are happier than ever that uh, I wasn't getting on a plane three times in a month, you know, and, and uh, missing half of the month. I come home from my first trip doing stand-up a couple months ago and... Uh, I think everything's cool, but about six hours later, my wife goes, you realize you hugged the dog first today. It's <laughs> like, I didn't even think about it. And then I was like, yeah, but she ran at me. You just stood there at the top of the driveway with your arms crossed. I don't know, maybe be proactive. I actually, as a as a traveling stand-up and somebody who's my age and has been doing it as long as I have, I kind of needed a break. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I could have gone three years. In your special, you talk about getting fat shamed by your favorite TV show. What <laughs> happened? Uh, I was watching uh, The Simpsons and uh, Homer. I I knew. I remember the episode. It's a classic episode, season seven. Uh, I think it's the the Weinstein Oakley years, I mm. believe. Uh, and uh, I think they even wrote the episode, but um, 
not completely sure, but uh, Simpsons nerds could correct me and uh, um, would. But uh, yeah, he Homer weighs himself, and we weighed the same that day, <laughs> and <laughs> and like the bit road itself. Then I got fat shamed by my favorite TV show. During COVID, I was just binge watching all the time, right? And I got the Disney Plus. So I watched all the Simpsons. And I was telling people it was during season seven. And then I was performing this joke in Buffalo. And a nerd yelled, season eight. And here's the thing about nerds. Like, if a dude can get his confidence up to yell at me from the dark... I'm going to believe that dude. <laughs> you have this very frightening story about accidentally scaring a woman who was working out in a hotel gym. Can you, can you tell us about this? It's again, I am so lucky that weird, weird stuff happens to me because I wouldn't have an act if, <laughs> if, if things, if events didn't happen that I could just write about. And I've always said to my family, like, do something funny. So this is a true story. I was <laughs> trying to lose weight, still am, and or am again. But how I was doing it was working out after I got off stage. So that's late. And it was a Saturday night, and I was somewhere. I think I, I say Kansas City, but I'm not sure that that's true. And uh, I did, it's all a blur. But uh, it was three years ago, and... Um, I get off stage, I go back to my room, and I uh, might have smoked a little marijuana, and I go up to my, uh, you know, just put my clothes on, and I wear street clothes, and I talk about that in my act. So I already look weird, you know, I'm a huge guy, and then I'm not dressed for the gym. And the gym that I went to in the hotel really had uh, their lights all set on a motion sensor. So... The strange thing is she must have been she was working out alone in the dark before I walked in. And then when I walked in, the lights kicked on and this all really happened. She turns around startled and I actually said to a stranger, don't be scared. And <laughs> it did not work. I saw the panic in her face and I actually said this out loud to a person. Don't be scared. <laughs> It didn't work. <laughs> I forgot something about myself. I'm almost six foot seven when I stand up straight. And you cannot be my size. You cannot be Jason Voorhees' size and sneak up on somebody and say, don't be scared. In, in Posena Non Grata, you have this aside about meeting Don Rickles. I'm curious if you can expand on this experience. What was it like, and what did you take away from him? Oh, yeah. Well, so that, um, one of the times I met him was in Chicago, so I, I mentioned it in the act because I'm in Chicago, and I just had that you know great memory of, I got to perform with him at the Chicago Theater, this huge 3,000-seat theater during the, the Chicago Comedy Competition, who knows what year now, like a long time ago, probably close to 20 years ago now. But at any rate, it came through us being at the same agency and uh, my agent set it up and then he liked me. And, and uh, so, yeah, I got to perform with him, had a couple meetings with him in L.A. It's he was an amazing guy. I was a, I was a huge, huge fan. One of my best memories is 
my agent calls me and goes, hey, uh, we're sending Don out on a college tour, and we want you and Patton Oswalt to come in because we were both at the same agency, and we both have the same manager and still do. Um, so it, it all came together that they wanted to talk to us about any advice for Don playing colleges. And we were both <laughs> like, what? That is ridiculous. Like, how could we have anything, you know, to give to him advice-wise, you know? And But we still took the meeting. He, Pat and I were both like, this sounds so dumb, but let's go and let's go meet the man, <laughs> you know? It was one of the greatest hour and a half of my life. We We were in the meeting for that long. He, we talked about a little bit about him touring. You know, my basic idea was, look, these kids will know who you are, especially, you know, at the time I was just like, show the hockey puck scene from Toy Story, do a little video, do something like that maybe before to kind of involve people and then come out and do your material. And I go, that's all, you know, that's all you need to do to make college kids, you know, they're going to know who you are and you're going to crush. So then we just sat and listened to him talk for an hour and a half, and it was the best day. He had um, a buddy who was sitting out in the other room come in just so he could make fun of him, pulled him into the office. <laughs> I swear, because look at this guy. Look at his hat. Look at his hair. Look at his face. Look at his shirt. Look at his just head to toe, ripped him, and then goes, that's all right. Now get out of here. <laughs> like, sends the guy going again. We're dying. Like, and he makes fun of us. He made fun of the way we were dressed. He told Patton and I, he goes, hey, if you kids come to the house, why don't you dress up, all right? Uh, you know, <laughs> my wife will think you're the gardeners. Like, cute kids, but where's their rake? And we're just, like, <laughs> losing it. Like, crying in tears. Because I love comedy. I mean, I do it for a reason. And nothing makes me laugh harder than other comedians. Like, hmm. Mm -hmm. The guy like David Taylor or whoever it is will make me cry tears of joy. I mean, I'm not the most famous comic in the world, but I have great memories. I've met my favorite bands. I've met musicians, people I worship. I got to meet Rush. I'm friends with the two nice guys in Metallica. <laughs> I once had Rob Zombie say this to me 16 years ago. Rob Zombie said, hey, you want to get shot in the face? I'm like, in a movie? He's like, yeah, sure. You talk about meeting a lot of your heroes throughout your career. I'm curious, who would be the next hero you'd like to meet besides Jason Momoa? <laughs> Honestly, uh, I'd like to have a real moment with people I've met. Like, I'd love to... My, if I could be in a room with Rush again mm. and actually meet Alex and Getty and just talk to them like human beings and not not as a screaming fan, mm -hmm. you know, I, I had a moment with them and I got to take a picture with them, but uh, I botched it so hard. I, I called Getty Sir twice in the sentence oh. and just, you know, they're my all-time favorite band. And uh, yes, I'm a metalhead, and yes, Rush is not metal, but um, that's how it goes. I mean, I've spent more time alone with that band in my, you know, headphones or 
cranking on my sound system than any other band and I look up to them. I look up to them as people and, and, you know, intellectually. And I feel like you could have a real conversation with both those guys and they both have great senses of humor. And I just feel like that, that moment was trashed. I mean, I was never going to, that, you know, meeting them that way was never going to be like a a big meaningful moment anyway, but Mm -hmm. I'd still like to have more, you know what I mean? Sure. Well, you've got, you know, you could, you could set that up. <laughs> we'll see. We could make it happen. I could try and help somehow because um, I'm Canadian like them. So maybe we'll figure I, out I something. I caught that. Oh, you did? Very good. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I've been yeah. down here. I've been in Wisconsin 23 years and I still I oh, can't lose You still the have the accent. Yeah. 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 Brian Posehn, thank you very much for joining us today. Congratulations on Posena non grata. It's very funny and very Posehn esque. <laughs> Thanks, man. Have a good one. Brian Posehn is a comedian, writer, actor, and podcaster. His latest comedy special is called Posena Non Grata. You can find out more about Brian and where to catch his special at wpr.org slash beta. Empathizing with all the characters in my book, both the good and the bad guys and gals, I think allows the reader a more immersive experience in the world that I'm trying to create. Coming up, one of today's best crime fiction writers, Sean Cosby, joins us to talk about the second life his debut novel is getting. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Sean Cosby is one of the best crime fiction writers working today. The acclaimed crime fiction writer Walter Mosley has said that Sean reinvented the American crime novel. Sean specializes in writing about people who we don't usually hear much about, the rural black community. His work has become so popular that his publisher recently reissued a new edition of his debut novel, My Darkest Prayer. My Darkest Prayer focuses on a man named Nathan Waymaker. Nathan is a former Marine and Sheriff's deputy who now works at his cousin's funeral home. In the introduction to the reissue, Sean writes candidly about the fear he felt when he decided to write his first novel. He'd been writing short stories and the idea of writing a novel was daunting. Fortunately for us, Sean overcame his self-doubt and wrote the powerful, suspenseful, and ultimately unforgettable My Darkest Prayer. The biggest thing for me was I wanted to write a compelling long form story. I had written a lot of short stories, had had some success with those, but I wasn't entirely confident that I had the the chops, I guess, to write a long form, a novel, basically. It was one of those things where I got into it, I realized it was infinitely more difficult than I had anticipated, but at the same time, it gave me the room to spread my wings, so to speak. I been feeling stifled by the short story form and so it was sort of this thing where I was afraid to do it but once I did it I felt so relieved because it allowed me to tell stories in much more detail than I had uh, been Mm -hmm. able to previously. Yeah you mentioned it was infinitely more difficult to write when you started writing My Darkest Prayer. What was so difficult about it? Was it like the 
the length that this being used to writing short stories, the length of the novel was that the the thing that was most difficult about it. I think the length, but in a different in a different way. Writing a short story is a very consistent rhythm. Of my short stories are no more than five thousand words, and so there's a a specific tone and rhythm to a short story that you establish pretty quickly. Uh, I, I do anyway. I try to anyway. With a short story, you, you, you're basically playing one note and to equate it to a musical um, uh, metaphor. With a novel, it's a symphony. And so there were challenges maintaining the rhythm and the tone, changing the tone in different scenes and uh, over the course of the book, creating a, a strong atmosphere. All those things were way more difficult in a novel than they were in a short story. But that being said, having the opportunity to be uh, flexible with the tone, with the atmosphere, to delve into more complex and more nuanced character interactions was gratifying to me as a writer. It allowed me to really stretch my skill set and to give my characters a much richer background. So as difficult as I found it at times and as daunting as I found it in times, I also found it to be where I feel most comfortable today. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of the action of My Darkest Prayer takes place in a funeral home. Why did you choose that location? <laughs> well, I was actually working at a funeral home at the time. I was the overnight person on call. And so on nights that I didn't have to go make a call, of what we like to call a removal in a funeral home speak, I was writing. And I continued that job right up till uh, Blacktop Wasteland came out. And so there is so much storytelling fodder, I guess is a good way of putting it, at funeral homes. Because you're seeing people at the worst times of their life, but you get to learn a lot about folks as well. You also learn a lot about compassion and empathy and understanding. And so those are things that I really wanted to include in the book. And I've also used that in my writing as my story, my career has continued, that empathizing with all the characters in my books, both the good and the bad guys and gals, I think allows the reader a more immersive experience in the worlds that I'm trying to create. The protagonist of My Darkest Prayer is a guy named Nathan Waymaker. Can you tell us about Nathan? <laughs> Nathan is probably one of my favorite characters. I think if you asked me who's most like me in the characters I've created, I would probably say Nathan because his sense of humor, his sort of sarcastic repartee that he has with mostly everybody he encounters is very similar to uh, to myself, my own personality. Uh, where Nathan differs from me is Nathan is an unmitigated badass. He can handle himself in multiple <laughs> types of different situations. I don't think I rise to that level. I like for my characters, especially the tough guy characters, to not just be tough guys. I, I like for them to have a deep well of emotion to pull from. And you get to see what makes them tough. I think the idea of toughness, the idea of hard-boiled protagonist or noir protagonist, it can be sort of narrow. And I wanted Nathan to be more diverse than that. I wanted him to have more layers than that. And uh, so I really tried to give him a really interesting backstory and a really interesting personality. And I hope I succeeded. Oh, you definitely succeeded in my opinion. Yeah. He has a, a very interesting a backstory. And one of the interesting things is that he had once been a deputy, but, but he left the sheriff, sheriff's office. Can you tell us about that? 
what happened? Yeah, he was once a deputy and he resigned, uh, as I say in the book, most vociferously. Basically what happened <laughs> <laughs> was, uh, unfortunately, his, his parents were killed in an automobile accident by a drunk driver. And because the driver was the son of a, a very wealthy local businessman, um, the sheriff declined to press charges. And Nathan did not agree with that decision. And he got into a confrontation with a fellow deputy named Victor Culler, who sort of serves as his anta- his secondary antagonist during the course of the book. And in the course of uh, Nathan resigning, he threw Victor through the window. And I, I use that story to sort of illustrate a lot of things about Nathan all at once. One, his sense of right and wrong. Also, that he is a, a, a he has a temper and he has delved into ways to try to control that. I think the thing with Nathan that I really like that I was able to do was he's painfully self-aware of himself. He he knows that he is not in a really good place mentally. He knows that there's some things that he is doing are, are not healthy, both physically and emotionally. And he's aware that he needs to work on those things. And he's aware in a way that I'm not, and a lot of people aren't, uh, but I really work to make him seem introspective and to make him seem like a character who is considering the consequences of his actions. That being said, I wouldn't be on the wrong side of him if he was ticked off. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, you could conceivably meet a person like Nathan. I hope that you don't ever have to meet a character like Bug from Blacktop Wasteland or a character like Ike mm. or Buddy Lee from Raised by Tears. But Nathan is yes. somebody you could definitely, you could definitely have a beer with, I think. I don't know if you want to, you have a beer with them other characters you might get shot at. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nathan's father was white and his mother was black. How does this shape the way he sees himself and how he views the world? I think for me, and I have friends who are of biracial background, and a lot of times, especially in small towns, you have to make a decision when you're biracial. Or am I going to go with my mother's side of the family or my father's side of the family? Or And for Nathan, that decision was kind of made for him. What I was trying to bring to the table for him as a character was I wanted to have a character that had to straddle both worlds in this small town, his white side and his black side, as someone who has moved among both worlds and maybe felt like a stranger in both places. And that, I think, helps create or give Nathan this, you know, that outsider edge that most privatized mm-hmm. or characters who work in the privatized genre have. And because of his outsider status, he is the person who can see more clearly into what the town is and what the denizens of the town are. What someone outside of his life or outside of his circle might see as some maybe sort of millstone that he has to carry is really his superpower. It's his ability to look past the surface and to see what people really are like when they stop being polite. Uh, And I think that he gets that from his background. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Very well said. Your action scenes are so vivid and visceral. How are you able to write them so well? (laughs) I guess, you know what? The macho thing would be to say, well, I've had my share of uh, bar fights and stuff like that. But really, (laughs) um, it it comes from, I was a theater kid and, and, and I was big on blocking I you know when I was working in in drama club in high school and college you know blocking and action and movement was really big and so I sort of brought that same mentality to my uh, action scenes one thing I learned 
And I learned this from a talk that Lee Chow gave. He breaks this rule all the time, but it's a very good rule to remember. He said, if your action scenes, if your fight scenes go on for more than two pages, they're not real fight scenes. And I, I took mm -hmm. that to heart. I, I, I feel like in real life, violence is brutal and quick, and it almost happens before you understand what's going on. It's like a car accident. And so I really strive to make my fight scenes, my action scenes, no more than three pages at the most, because I think you start to lose the reader. And I think that's what Mr. Childs was saying. Watching an action scene like that in a movie like, say, The Born Identity is exhilarating. Uh, but reading an action scene like that, I think, is uh, exhausting. And so I definitely try to compress my action scenes, get the most bang for my buck. Also, I used to do a lot of <laughs> used to I used to do a lot of physical stuff. I used to uh, wrestle in high school. I took a keto for a few years, um, so I do have a combat, a little bit of a combat background. Combining that with just what I consider, you know, a really strong narrative flow, I hope makes the action scenes compelling and uh, exciting. Oh, it definitely does. And I think just to mention, you mentioned, I think it was the Born Identity to watch the action scenes in that. It's exhilarating, but on the page, not so much. And I think that probably has to do with it. It d demands more cognitive bandwidth, brain power from mm -hmm. the, the reader, doesn't it? To keep track oh, yeah. of all what's going on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Especially if you've got a fight scene where it's multiple attackers. Although anybody who's ever been in a real life fight will tell you, um, multiple attackers don't wait one at a time to come after you. So no. <laughs> just be, be aware that when you're reading the books, that that's a little a dramatic license that I think every writer takes because, you know, in a real life fight, multiple attackers means you're, you're going to lose. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you for those tips, Sean. You, you write very realistic and also very funny dialogue. How do you pull that off so well? <laughs> I think for me, I love listening to people talk and I'm not eavesdropping. I really not. I love listening to the rhythm of conversations. One of the things that I missed uh, on a visceral level during the pandemic was going to a bar with like a friend and having a beer and just sitting at the corner of the bar and listening to all the different conversations, listen to the ebb and flow, the rise and, and dip, the pitch of a conversation. And when I write my dialogue, I try to write the way people really talk. I have characters talk over each other. I have characters cut each other off. I have characters that will have a statement just sort of winnow out to nothing or they'll meander through the course of the conversation. As far as the humor, I <laughs> I grew up in a very uh, humorous family, very quick-witted aunts and uncles. And so uh, you had to be very... Uh, <laughs> you had to be very sharp on your feet if you're going to hang around my house for, especially it comes to mind Thanksgiving. When I was a kid, the Thanksgiving dinners around my house were uh, exuberant because all my aunts and uncles like to pick on each other. They like to hurl very gentle insults at each other. And so that sort of uh, fast paced uh, raconteur style stuck with me. And so I bring it to my characters and, uh, Writing jokes when you're writing a, a book or a story is difficult because there's nobody there to, to bounce them off of. And so you don't know if they're going to really land until you see, you know, the reviews and then, oh, y'all got that joke. You got what I was saying. Yeah. You, you have said that writing My Darkest Prayer convinced you that you could indeed write a book and that you wouldn't be where you are today if it wasn't for that debut novel. So I'm wondering 
where do you think you would be today if you had not written My Darkest Prayer? <laughs> Probably still working 60 hours a week at a hardware store. Um, I think Darkest Prayer was not the book that I left my job to write, but it was the book that made me think I could leave this job. Without Darkest Prayer, without Nathan and Skunk and Walt and the whole crew, I, I just don't see my, I don't think Black Tie Wasteland definitely wouldn't have happened. And I don't think Razorblade would have happened. I wouldn't have the opportunities that I've had. It just, you know, I got emotional writing that new introduction because Nathan and Skunk and, and all that, those characters, I, you know, they're like old friends. They were there, as I said in the introduction, before the Halcyon days, before the Obama summer reading lists and all the awards. And, you know, those were the characters that I talked to as I, you know, sat in my, uh, my booth at my local coffee shop writing on my lunch break. And uh, I can never, uh, I can never repay those guys. And I mean that, you know, they're just like real people to me and I can never repay them for what they've done for me. That's great. Sean Cosby, thank you very much for joining us today. Congratulations on My Darkest Prayer. We're looking forward to your fourth novel, All the Sinners Bleed, and hopefully we can have you back to talk about that book when it comes out. Oh, thank you so much. I would love to do it. And thank you guys for having me. Sean Cosby is the author of My Darkest Prayer. You can find out more about Sean and his work at wpr.org slash beta. Watching sexually objectifying media is correlated to a higher rates of sexual harassment and even sexual assault. Coming up, filmmaker Nina Menkis talks about her powerful and provocative documentary, Brainwashed, Sex, Camera, Power. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Have you noticed that male actors and female actors are filmed very differently? The independent filmmaker Nina Menkes certainly has, and she sees a very clear connection between the visual language of cinema and the negative impact that this can have on women. It can lead to employment discrimination against women and an environment of pervasive sexual harassment, abuse, and assault. This is why Nina has made the documentary Brainwashed, Sex, Camera, Power. Kate Erbland of IndieWire says that Brainwashed will forever change how you look at films. And it's hard to disagree. Nina joined us from her home in Los Angeles to tell us more about her doc. The idea that shot design is gendered came to me from observing film after film after film where I noticed that male actors and female actors are systematically photographed very differently. And there is almost a, what I would say, it's like a so-called law about the sexual difference in photography that is followed pretty automatically by a great majority of directors. Not everybody, I, I must add, but many. And many of the A-list films that we look at in the brainwashed film, we have almost 200 clips um, from the con winners, from the Academy Award winners, from the biggest names that we all know in film, you know, Spike Lee, Quentin Tarantino, Sofia Coppola, often do it. We don't know if it's conscious or unconscious, 
but it's deliberate and it's a repeated pattern. So if you see the film, you'll you'll see this repeated pattern again and again and again and again so many times that it's it's kind of irrefutable, actually. Mm-hmm. And what is, can you give us a few details about what the pattern is? Yes. Well, I identify basically five points. The first one is point of view, like whose perspective is the story from? And through the history of cinema, the perspective of the person who is the subject is very, very often the male hero. And the woman is in the position of the object. There's a way that a shot is constructed that we all understand that means this person is the subject and this person is the object, right? So so we look at that subject-object point of view. Then we look at framing. How are shots framed by the camera? What about camera movement? You know, an example is that women... Actresses often have fragmented body parts. You will not see that on a heterosexual male actor. He won't be shot like that. Or body pans up and down or horizontal body pans that's reserved almost entirely for female actors. And then you have slow-mo. Slow-mo for male actors is action, military, and slow-mo for female actors is sexualization. Then you have lighting. The way that men are lit, the way that women are lit is different. And then all of those points can be seen in a multiple of contexts. They can be seen in horror, in drama, in a film by a man, in a film by a woman. They can be seen where the woman is actually the protagonist of the story on a script level, but photographically she's objectified. So we can see it in a huge wide array of contexts. So it's sort of like this meta message that's underlying the story. It's more subtle for most people when they walk into a movie, they get involved in the story, they're watching the action, they're they're not paying attention to how the shots are constructed. Mm. You, You see a very clear connection between the visual language of cinema and its negative impact on women, which you kind of outlined there. But can you tell us a bit more the the, the effects that this kind of uh, objectification of women has on them? The thesis of the film, which is a polemic, is that this system of gendered shot design, which is pretty much irrefutable, it exists, is connected to the twin epidemics of sexual assault, sexual abuse, and employment discrimination against women. And the reason that we connect it is the concept of objectification. So when you come to sexual objectification, it's often presented as as a beautiful thing. In the film, I say, you know, it's glamorized. So you sort of lose the understanding that objectification is not a beautiful thing. And objectification is tied to seeing another person as having less than full agency and, it, and is there to be acted upon, right? And so then that is a pretty easy step to understand that if a certain group of people is consistently objectified, both in their own minds and in the, in the minds of the people who are subjects, in this case, you know, the heterosexual male population, 
it's not a shock that research has shown extensively and over decades, numerous studies, that watching sexually objectifying media is correlated to a higher rates of sexual harassment and even sexual assault, and that the women who self-objectify, which is a really kind of a big story these days, girls, especially teenage girls, who self-objectify, it's been correlated, and research has shown that it's correlated to higher incidences of depression, eating disorders, body dysmorphia, and a higher acceptance of sexual harassment and even assault. One of the talking heads in your documentary is Laura Mulvey, and Laura is probably best known for coining the term the male gaze. Can you give us a breakdown of the male gaze? Yeah, so Laura Mulvey's essay uh, from 1975 is very much the starting off point of the documentary and the starting off point for anyone who starts learning about feminist film theory. And she was the first person who talked about the fact that women in cinema occupy a place that she called to be looked at-ness, which is a beautiful way of saying (laughs) they're objectified, right? Right. And she called it the male gaze. What's a little different about the film than feminist film theory is feminist film theory tends to be quite involved in complicated psychoanalytic concepts and semiotics and all sorts of things that are extremely interesting and extremely relevant, but... What I did in Brainwashed as a filmmaker and a cinematographer myself and not really a theorist is just get really, really basic and in a way simple at looking at these very, very clear markers in terms of shot design, even what I said before, like camera movement, camera placement, blocking, even audio. How are these very clear, concrete things, creating the male gaze, creating this monolithic way of seeing. And women directors do it and men directors do it, just like Bell Hooks, the wonderful writer, said patriarchy has no gender, Mm. right? So men can perpetuate it, women can perpetuate it. So it's really a way of seeing that most people have internalized and then reproduce. Mm. Can you give us an example of how the male gaze is used in film and how it objectifies women? Well, it's easier to see than than to hear about it. Okay, let's take the fantastic masterpiece, and I agree it's a masterpiece, Metropolis by Fritz Lang from 1927. It's, you know, widely considered a masterpiece. But there's a sequence in Metropolis that we use at the beginning of Brainwash, which is overt and extreme sequence of the male gaze. You see men looking, you see close up on their eyes, and then you cut to this beautiful woman sort of dancing, and then you cut back to their eyes, and then you cut back to this woman dancing, and then you cut to a super close up of their eyes, and then there are like a million eyes all over the screen. This is like sort of a prototypical male gaze moment. It doesn't mean that it's not a good film. No. It's actually a brilliant film. 
or another brilliant film that a lot of people love, including me and you, mm-hmm. Vertigo by yes. Hitchcock. We see the whole film from the perspective of Scotty, from the male perspective. And then there's this woman who's this alluring object of desire who's always like disappearing into the distance and, you know, like looking like a mirage and all this stuff. That doesn't mean it's not a great film, but let's just be real about the fact that if all you see and all you're taught in film school is one male subject after another male subject and all these beautiful women who are like a mirage and a hallucination and a sexy object, you know, that starts to have a really serious impact. Yeah, definitely. You also analyze a scene from Jay Roach's 2019 film, Bombshell. Can you tell us about this scene? Yeah. So you have this one scene where the whole film is a feminist story. It's about three women who went into a lawsuit against Roger Ailes at Fox News um, for sexual harassment, and they won the lawsuit. In theory, it's an empowering film for women. Then you look at the one scene where you actually see sexual harassment on camera, and it's shot just like all these other scenes that we've seen. It's like close up on her underwear, pan up her body, pan down her body, close up on her underwear again, pan up her body, pan down her body. It's done very beautifully. The lighting is beautiful. Margot Robbie looks beautiful. Everything about it is sort of beautiful. Her expression looks a little upset, but the point of view of that scene is classic male gaze. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you go from your analysis of that scene to Twilight director Catherine Hardwick, and she had some very interesting thoughts on this scene from Bombshell. What did she say? She was pointing out that the scene did not have to be shot that way. We could have seen the whole scene from Margot Robbie's point of view. We could have maybe stayed on her face and just seen how she felt about it. Why did you have to have it from the, first of all, the man's point of view, and secondly, sort of beautified. I mean, Catherine Harvick didn't get into the beautification aspect, but the beautification aspect is really problematic in that scene as well. Like, if you imagine being sexually harassed by your boss, it's probably extremely traumatic and and awful experience. But the way that they shoot it is just super glam. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any hopes that your brainwashed is going to have an impact and influence people and to follow Catherine Hardwick's ideas of, you know, shooting scenes in different ways that uh, don't uh, objectify women? I have the feeling that it's having a very big impact already. Really? I guess time will tell. But, I mean, the film started at Sundance. Mm-hmm. It went to the Berlinale. It went to all the major film festivals of the world. It's being released theatrically by Kino Lorber, so it's out in theaters. It will eventually be streaming widely, So, and it's also being released by Canopy, which is the educational streamer. It will go to all film schools on all universities. And we were even mentioned as a possible contender for the Oscars by Ann Thompson at IndieWire. She's a highly respected journalist. So I think that 
there is a sort of groundswell excitement about the film because it's something that a lot of people, and I dare I say maybe more women than men, have felt, but they might not have had a language for it. That's what that's what I've heard from a lot of people, a lot of audiences. Someone's come up and said like, you know, I've been going to movies my whole life and I always had this like slightly weird feeling and I didn't really have words to talk about what that weird feeling was and now I do. Hmm. Yeah, well, congratulations to you on accomplishing that because that is a big accomplishment because I think I was in the same position. I was not conscious of the the language to use to describe what what was being done and I hadn't really thought about it until I watched the documentary. So what do you hope that people who watch Brainwashed will take away from it? I hope that it just raises consciousness. You know, I say in the film that I don't want to be the sex police. I'm not trying to tell people how to make films and I'm also not anti-erotic. Uh, as I say in the film, you know, if you are a heterosexual male filmmaker and you want to photograph some woman's derriere, I'm not, I'm not here to say don't do it. I'm just here to bring illumination to the fact that that's how it's been done over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And maybe by shedding light on this system, it will start to change. Because what I, what I have learned in my own life is that when you bring consciousness to something, it does transform. Hmm. That's very good. I love that quote. Nina Menkis, thank you very much for joining us. Congratulations on Brainwashed, Sex Power Camera. It's a very provocative, informative, and important documentary. Thank you so, so much. Nina Menkis is the director of the documentary Brainwashed, Sex, Camera, Power. Find out more about Nina and her film at wpr.org beta. Well, that does it for this edition of Beta. Thanks to our guests, Brian Posehn, Sean Cosby, and Nina Menkis. Beta is available to follow on Spotify or wherever you catch your favorite pods. Don't forget to offer a rating or to share with new alphas. And you can keep up with us during the week online at wpr.org beta or on Twitter at WPR beta. Even for the internet, it's pretty shocking. Beta is a production of Wisconsin Public Radio and Red Me Productions. Fantastic. Our music and technical director is Steve Gotcher. He was great. Did you see him and the wife after the show? He was in the lobby going, nobody knows me. Our executive producer is Adam Friedrich. Little guy. He's the kind of guy in prison who was the squealer all the time. And thanks to you, our alphas. You are a Cadillac. To me, that is the top of the industry. More beta comes your way next week. Until then, I'm Doug Gordon. He's sitting there like there's nothing going on. Get busy.